it's still extremely expensive. I think that that's priced around $400,000 a ticket. So a lot less than 50 million, but obviously still not yeah. like. I also your, don't have 400 yeah. <laughs> lying around. To <laughs> yeah. So still not your average. And, and, and um, <laughs> it's all a progression in that direction. And so. Okay. Sort of so when print, when yeah. will I be able, maybe like, I don't know, like, will we ever get to a point where you can pay the price of a plane ticket to go into space, Ian? Mm. Yeah, that, I, I could give you a number and it would be like... Hey, Power Hour fam, we've got a really cool guest on the pod today. His name is Ian Vorbach, and he's an expert on all things space development. He's got a master's in aeronautic, astronomical, and aerospace engineering from Stanford, as well as a Wharton MBA. So he's got a great mix of the understanding of both the technical and business aspects of space. He's currently building a stealth space startup, and he runs a niche space newsletter that's read by... Blue Origin, SpaceX, Amazon, Bessemer Ventures, and more. So you can join his subscriber base and learn along at www.space.biz. Today we learned so much and I really enjoyed it. We talk about the arc of space development, what era we are in today, how government works with private companies. We talk a ton about how billionaires have founded these private companies and propelled the development in the space industry forward. And then we also touch on Ian's personal journey and how an unexpected exit actually really allowed him to pursue his passions in the space. So enjoy y'all. It's a really fun one. Hi, Ian. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? I'm doing great. It's been so long where I've been excited to get to meet you. So this is very fun for me. Yeah, same. Heard so much about you. So yeah. Amazing. And so eager to learn about space today uh, with Marcin. We are obsessed with space, but very much a novice compared to you. So thanks for digging into this with me. Yeah, very happy to. And I could probably talk about this kind of stuff more than I should. So you'll have to <laughs> make sure you could keep me on track. I will. And the enthusiasm is welcome. So let's get started from the beginning, Ian. I understand that you have been into space since you were a young child. Tell me about how this got started for you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I've definitely had a connection or interest to space since my childhood. And I, I guess to some extent, that's kind of a lot of people do. And my story is unique in that it's sort of become also my career. I grew up um, in like the New York City area. I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, if you know the geography, right over the George Washington Bridge in, in New Jersey. And I used to go to a few museums in the area that I feel like had a big impact on inspiring my um, interest in space. So I remember being a kid and going to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City a number of times. And they have this beautiful giant planetarium, the Hayden Planetarium. And I just yes. remember going to this, Did you the space shows a lot. Yeah. Did you get to meet Neil deGrasse Tyson while he was director there? No, I never have. So <laughs> hopefully one day I'll oh, at least be able to like attend something that he that he speaks at. <laughs> but what um, a great place to get to visit as a child. Yeah, yeah. So that I just remember they have these big, uh, you know, the space shows, and I remember the going to them and the lights going out and getting dark and like mm -hmm. sort of being immersed in this experience. 
and that always felt like a kind of a warm place as a kid yeah uh, and loving that and then eventually it just became I liked math and in, in, you know in elementary middle school and high school really enjoyed physics and and mm-hmm. then it sort of just kind of went went on from there so awesome. yeah I feel I feel like yeah. that's kind of some of the early stuff yeah I feel like there's so many paths one can take in exploring their interest in space you could become an astronaut you could go work at NASA or SpaceX or do research or work in the tech scene or like space investments, et cetera. And so curious, what led you down your path? So for the context for listeners, you went on to Stanford, you earned a master's in aerospace, aeronautical and astronomical engineering. Uh, yeah. Today you <laughs> run a space newsletter, which I know is Excellent. And you also do angel investments in space. So tell us a little bit about what led you down this particular path. Yeah, yeah. So I would say the first sort of dip into trying to work on aerospace projects was at college. I mentioned I was really enjoyed physics in high school. I went mm-hmm. to college at, at Yale and I continued physics as my major there. And along with a group of friends, we started a, a group called the Yale Undergraduate Aerospace Association because we wanted to work on aerospace projects. <laughs> So we started with doing weather balloons that would take pictures of the high upper atmosphere, sort of low ed- edges of space, pretty far from actual space, but like, it, you know, the pictures look like you're kind of uh, up there. And That sounds um, so cool, Ian. Yeah, it was awesome. It was it was really like the closest thing we could get to try to exploring that. And, and none of us really understood, I think at the time, I certainly didn't like what that might mean as a, as a career. It was just to work on something cool and... and um, now I understand this group that we started when I was in college at around like, I think it was 2010, is now like the biggest engineering student group on campus because really nothing wow. to do with what, yeah, with what I did or what we did, but just I think it, it uh, shows how much like space has sort of uh, um, become exciting to in the last 10 years to students who now want to find a way to work in this industry and and to like get hands-on experience in college so they can do that. So now they do like rockets and all these other things that we never imagined doing um, <laughs> become this much larger thing. Um, yeah, and and so, you know, to that extent, I, I really didn't know what, uh, what a career doing that meant. And I actually kind of fumbled around in college trying to figure out what I did want to do. So I had friends who were in finance uh, and I ended up doing an internship in investment banking felt that that really wasn't uh, a good fit for me. And, and then after graduating, I ended up working in, in startups. I was really interested in exploring like what it felt like to try to build a company. And so I worked in early stage companies, but having not really an awareness of the sort of like entrepreneurial space world at the time I was graduating around 2012, I worked in startups in like the consumer products world. So mm-hmm. outside, uh, anything very tech related, um, and really found I did enjoy the entrepreneurial side of things, but wanted eventually to get back into something technical. And so after four years working at startups and, and being an early employee at a couple of startups that went on and scaled and, and fortunately had uh, sort of like major exit events, I, I then went back to school to um, to study aerospace engineering because I was like, I'm. I, it was around 2015, 2016. And I became much more aware of that industry. I think in 2015, SpaceX first landed a rocket. And I saw that like somewhere online and was like, oh, my God, like this, this is a thing. This is a, an industry. Um, 
and I would love to be a part of it. How do I drop everything I'm doing and, and change the direction of my career to, to be a part of it? And so to me, that felt like going, uh, the most direct path was to go back to school and do an engineering degree, um, graduate degree to, to be able to sort of do that. So that's, that's what I did. Yeah. And, and, and so now I, I sort of try to combine as much as possible my experience with startups that I've had outside the space industry. Now I have some experience with startups inside the space industry and, um, and, and yeah, try to put that all together with the technical background I have as well. And, and so I, I write a newsletter, I do a little bit of angel investing and, um, I'm actually working on co-founding a space startup as well, which is still a little bit in stealth mode, but, you know, hopefully in the future, we'll be able to talk more about it. It's so clear how authentic all of these passions in space are for you. And I think we all find our paths to figuring out what's authentic for us and being able to do that. And it sounds like you're getting into it and getting your hands kneading into it. And that sounds really fulfilling. Yeah, I'd say it is. And I'd say it took me a while to figure out what that path was. So um, I remember being in college and putting a ton of pressure on myself to like have my life figured out and my career figured out by the end of it. And it was as every 18 year old, sadly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is like kind of an absurd expectation to have at that time of your life. In fact, I remember, I remember when I was uh, applying to graduate school, I was, I guess, 26 or 27 and thinking, Oh, Oh man, like I'm so far into this other career in, in consumer products. Like, why would anyone take me? I'm so much older. Like, and now looking back, it's like, I was so young. And, and to think of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that I, I felt like I was too old to go back to school. And it was like, it's a crazy that like, That's it a, just takes so silly. long. Yeah. <laughs> it is totally silly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it just takes time. And like, you know, you're going to have different passions and different things will excite you throughout your career. And, and sometimes you can pursue them and sometimes you can and you just try to figure it all out and, and there's, there's yeah. clearly no right path. Yeah. Absolutely. No right path. We're all figuring it out. I actually want to yeah. call out something that I know is fascinating about your journey as you were figuring things out, as everyone does, is you had a really successful first job out of college. And this is a digression. We'll come back to space. And if you feel comfortable sharing, you had a really successful job in the sense that somehow, Ian, as you were figuring it out, you landed a, in a role that where you sounds like you learned a ton, but this was also a really successful team. You mentioned you had you guys had an exit. And I know that that's really helped you kind of enter angel investing and be able to think more about what you want to do that's really fulfilling for you. I say all of this to say, looking back for you, Ian, what advice would you give to folks who are in college trying to land their first jobs? What what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, yeah. So I can talk a little more about of that organization and that job. So um, I joined out of college a startup in the consumer products world, actually a beverage company um, called Body Armor is the name of the product. It's a, a sports drink, so like a healthier competitor to Gatorade. And um, I uh, I became uh, you know aware of that company because uh, there was sort of like an interesting connection where, so both my parents are, are engine, uh, my dad's an engineer, my mom's a scientist, she's a food scientist, and she actually develops flavors for beverage companies. And she's had this interesting career where she's um, done that, but also helped specialize a little bit in startups, helping that startup entrepreneurs develop flavors for beverage companies. And so yeah. when I was sort of 
figuring out and, and trying to explore different things as I was graduating college. She said, do you want to you know, interview with a company that I am familiar with, that I've, I've worked with? And, um, and, and so that was sort of how I became aware of the company. And, and, I and, and what sort of made sense to me about Body Armor was the founders had had success previously. And it was very unclear, yeah. I think, at the time, if there was going to be success with this particular uh, company. In fact, the company was kind of struggling a little at first, which I think is just also the case for for a lot of startups. But um, there, the the people who were leading it had had previous success, and so I was, I guess, kind of taking a bet with my career that I think a lot of investors do, which is like you hope that someone who's done done it before will figure it out, and so. Mm. And I think I've kind of carried that in other parts of my career where I try to just like work with people I really respect and admire and like try to make myself useful to them and hope that if they have success, I am continue to be useful in whatever they're doing next. Um, because, yeah, I think, you know, your, your career is often just like a series of opportunities to work with different exciting people and, and different, you know, on, on exciting projects. And so, um, yeah, that that was... Uh, that was sort of like that, that first job and sort of it all, like it took, you know, some time at first, but we sort of figured it out and it clicked. And I, I was a very small part of that whole growth of that organization, which um, the sort of like the successful outcome was I was there from 2013 to 2015, some of the first two years. And, and eventually in 2021, it was um, purchased by Coca-Cola and had a big uh, multi-billion dollar acquisition from Coca-Cola. Um, yeah. but it was another, another thing that I, that really sticks with me is a very unglamorous, uh, job, yeah. um, at first. Which... So like, yeah, it, 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 which I think was helpful for me to see that something that can be very unglamorous, um, can, hmm. can grow to be something very exciting. Cause you know, at the time all my friends were going to banking and consulting and, and highly prestigious jobs. And right. I think I kind of working at this startup company that was struggling. Um, it was a tough, uh, it, it looked out of place. And I think a lot of people were very confused um, by why I was doing it. Um, but it, it was just an opportunity to sort of be, to learn from people who I think had, had the kind of success that I was hoping to emulate over time. So, so much yeah. packed in there and really sage advice to Surround yourself with people you respect, you admire, you think you can learn from and just try and be of service to them. Yeah. Love that for folks looking to get started in their careers. And then I heard something else I want to point out, which is it sounds like you noticed that these folks had done something before they'd had they'd either run a company before and this was their second time around. And that's something we hear in investing, right? Like second time founders tend to have more success just because they've experienced more failure and kind of know a little bit more about the ecosystem. Not to say that first time founders are not successful at all, but that that was something additional of a data point for you. And then I hear a lot of humility there. Like you were mentioning, you were a very small part of the success, even though I'm pretty sure knowing what I know about you, that you work really hard, you're really passionate. Uh, and sounds like a little bit of luck too, that your mom uh, brought this up for you and, and all these things combined just to show how life is all, a lot of things need to come together to get this magical moment uh, in play. So I'm really glad that you had that experience and that was really sage advice to share with listeners. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a huge amount of, of luck that goes into it that, uh, 
obviously, uh, you know, is, is, is tough for, to replicate, you know, even for myself when I try to, I've tried to work on different projects and, you know, throughout my career yeah. that have, some have been successful and some have, have failed and, and that's sort of just the, the process. Um, yeah, it's a process yeah. in life. We learn from yeah. our failures much more than we do from our successes. Yeah. Take that one step further. Also, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll just say one thing that I think was really good for that uh, experience was it was very much outside my comfort zone because I graduated with a physics degree and sort of thought that like my contribution would be like coming up, working on really intellectual problems and, and, and in, in that manner. And, and the, that job, um, they were really to, to the credit of the people who I, I work for, who they pushed me to do sales and like in the field, yeah. in marketing very early on. And it was something that was very painful for me. And I think it's, that's also become to be a lesson for everything I do is like, if just the, being willing to, to do the, the kind of painful things that are like growth oriented, uh, mm -hmm. is, um, I don't know, there's just a lot of opportunity to do that because, um, there's a tendency, I think, for people to continue to focus on where their strengths are always. Right. And uh, true. There's yeah. growth outside of our comfort zones, not within. Yeah. And I was very bad at it too <laughs> when I started, like for a long time. So it's uh, it's okay to, to be like the only way to get good at something is to be bad at it for a very long time. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's bring it back to space, Ian. And again, novice here. I think there's this romantic view of space exploration, which is we may be able to visit different planets, etc. Uh, and I want to answer a couple of questions just for for setting the context. What's your sense of when regular folks would be able to go to space? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's a great question. And it kind of depends on your definition of regular. Because if like you were... me, like Jennifer, I'm not okay. an astronaut. I don't <laughs> yeah. invest in space companies. Well, well, even to say you're not an astronaut, there are now, I would say, I think there's been. Um, so if you're talking about space where you're like going into orbit, orbital space, where you're not like a, a suborbital mission that goes up and down after a couple of minutes, which is going to space, but it's a different type of experience. Like there has been a, a purchased private mission through SpaceX that uh, took place earlier this year that went to the International Space Station. Actually, there's been two per, uh, private like multi-day uh, missions to space. The people who purchased them are not professional astronauts. They are, uh, you know, they probably spent somewhere around 40 to $50 million to do it. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely not an average, like average person by pay scale, but they are not, uh, they did not go through <laughs> I the definitely don't core. have. <laughs> I don't have 40 to $50 million lying around Ian to, yeah. to go to space right now. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah ne neither do I. Um, and so <laughs> in terms of like average person, it's definitely not average person on pay scale. But right now, you do not need to be selected by like the US government to as you would have in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And so now it's like very high net worth individuals uh, who are able to do it. And then um, and then if you look at some Let of me, like, yeah. Can I pause you there? So understanding yeah. about a few high net worth individuals have already gone to the, to orbit, to International Space Station via SpaceX. Yes. And yeah, then so, I, wasn't there one with Virgin too, where they just like entered and then came back down? Exactly. Yeah. And, and so okay. like that, that experience, that's sort of what's called like suborbital space tourism, where you go up and you're, you're not going into orbit where you're sort of like perpetually orbiting the earth, you kind of go on this suborbital trajectory that comes, goes up and comes back down. 
that actually is, uh, you know, a, a much more uh, like it's still extremely expensive. I think that that's priced around four hundred thousand dollars a ticket. So a lot less than fifty million, but obviously still not yeah. like. I also your, don't have four hundred yeah. <laughs> around. To go yeah, so still not your average, <laughs> and and, and um, <laughs> it's all a progression in that direction, and so okay. Sort of so when to, when yeah. will I be able, maybe like, I don't know, like, will we ever get to a point where you can pay the price of a plane ticket to go into space, Ian? Mm. Yeah, that I, I could give you a number and it would be like a total guess. <laughs> but I think that future okay. exists. And I'm whether it would be, it. Tell me. <laughs> yeah, whether it'd be like 30 to like 60 years from now, I think that that could. So that's definitely oh, within man, our lifetime. Oh, that's lifetimes. far. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the oldest person, I think like William Shatner went on one of those trips uh, a few months ago and he was 90. So hopefully we'll still be in, well, hopefully we'll all be living in like 200 by then. Uh, and, yeah. And, <laughs> but We would have figured out how to optimize our health to the extent where we'll be 200 and healthy and happy and loving it. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe, um, you know, way overestimating the, the amount of time and, and people say like, you, un- you overestimate what technology is going to do in the next year, but underestimate what it'll do in 10 years. So maybe in 10 years, yeah. that'll be possible. Yeah. Um, so but help me yeah. help me think about it. We're talking about economies of scale here. How do we really significantly lower the cost of space travel for folks like me? Yeah. What would go into it to bring that price down? Yeah, yeah. great question. So uh, so like with regards to this question, the real focus is like the, the what's called the launch part of the space industry. So how do you get things from surface of the earth up into space? And so that's really all about the rockets and, and the traditional form of like using rockets to get into space has been you launch something up and the whole rocket kind of gets discarded. It just sort of like falls mm-hmm. after you, you put the payload into space, it falls into the ocean. And mm-hmm. we are gradually moving towards much higher reusability in in the launch vehicle world so the first ones to do that was spacex with landing the first stage of the rocket and and so they reuse that and you're talking about a system that was like never um built to be like reusable such that it was a sort of low touch reusability like every every launch vehicle um every spacex first stage rocket that gets reused probably goes back to the factory and gets inspected and, and there's a certain amount of disassembly and reassembly. It's not like a plane where it lands, you, you onboard it, you clean it in an right. hour. And then so, okay. so, but that, that has already started with the first stage, but the second stage of the rocket um, still lands in the ocean and, and gets lost. And so that next step is probably full reusability, which is what SpaceX is working on for their next generation rocket that's called Starship. If, if anyone's ever seen those like videos that the tests that take place yeah. in Texas and stuff like that. And so that that's the hope for that is full reusability. And, and that's another major step where you're not throwing anything out on every launch and you start to approach mm-hmm. the cost is just like the fuel cost. And so that's that's definitely what at least what would be required um, to get to. So that sounds like we would yeah. then be able to use rockets like we do planes today. Yeah, okay. exactly. And then you're approaching like the fuel cost is the dominant cost. And there's going to be need to be a lot of scale to get there. There's mm-hmm. also going to need to be years of competition because once SpaceX does this, they're going to be the only player that's doing full reusability. And um, mm-hmm. whenever they are able to succeed in this. And so you're going to need sort of like this all to become a much more mature industry where people are optimizing 
you know, how do you measure the failures of like, you know, in a, in a, in a airplane engine, there's like very well understood data around like, when is an engine crack? How many use, how many thousands of uses does it become? And, and right. you're going to have to see that sort of maturity take place in the space industry probably. But I guess if, you know, we're approaching the first space, the first rocket to have full reusability with Starship, hopefully in the near term. Hmm. So it's, uh, at least what it looks like is sort of the vision is there, what that looks like as you enter maturity and, and uh, like, a, you know, that that'll be a whole other thing for the space industry to figure out, um, which is really exciting. Yeah. yeah. That I'm excited. I can't wait to, to go get more updates on this. Help me understand the difference between SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin. Where does Blue Origin stand and how is it different from the other two? Yeah. So, so Blue Origin, for those aren't familiar, it's, a, uh, a space company that's entirely funded by Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. It's unknown exactly what he spends on Blue Origin, but like the, the guesstimate that people use is somewhere around, he puts about a billion dollars into the company a year, which just from that makes it like the most well-funded private space company, you know, next to SpaceX. I don't know yeah. uh, what the actual numbers for each is, but some like those are uh, kind of the two that are largest fund. But mm-hmm. um and Blue Origin has actually been around for a similar amounts of time as SpaceX. I think Blue Origin was founded in like 2000 and SpaceX in 2002. But for Blue Origin's like first seven or eight years, my understanding is it was much more of like a think tank type of um, project and, and didn't really have the ambitions at first to be like a, a launch vehicle company. And, and then what they're looking at now is like space stations, and private space stations. But um but that, that's what they're trying to do now. And so, so they are also working on a really large rocket and they are hoping, I think, to, to launch it in the next couple of years. And, and that rocket, I think they also have ambitions for it to be fully reusable. I would say the, the biggest difference, the biggest similarities between SpaceX and, and Blue Origin is probably like the amount of funding that goes into them. The biggest difference mm-hmm. is, uh, and, and they both hire, they both bring in excellent talent. Um, I would say the biggest difference is uh, SpaceX has a little more track record right now of, of, of all the things they've done to get up to this point, which is they had their, their, their Falcon 9 rocket, which is kind of like their workhorse rocket that's been around and launching for somewhere around like 10 to 12 years. It, uh, it was the first rocket to land. It, it's the first, SpaceX is the first private company to send up people to... Uh, orbital space and and to the space station um and blue origin has uh has has they have a suborbital rocket that they they do tourism with which you may have seen jeff bezos going up in a launch i think it was summer of 2021 but they have not had the same yet number of or, or significant accomplishments um on sort of like the orbital side of things that where they would be hoping to compete with spacex and so there's still a little bit, I think, of uh, to be proven for them, and so that's that's kind of how I would differentiate those two. But Origin has very large ambitions. They want to mm-hmm. be a big launch provider, putting a lot of things into space, and then they now are they have ambitions to build their own like private space station, similar to if you're familiar with the International Space Station, where you have researchers going up. Yeah, exactly. Experiments going on in space. Um, they want to operate a state, a space station like that as well. So, um, 
but SpaceX is but really a private kind of, one with with the International Space Station. I believe it's governments, right? Like Russia, Japan, U.S. I believe France and some other countries. And then this one would be private. So by private individuals funding and moving forward research. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so they the, the International Space Station has been operated. I actually don't know whether it's the early 2000s, I believe, the mid 2000s. Um, we can and, fact check it. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, but they, currently the, that program is not meant to live in perpetuity. Like, I think it's currently funded through 2030, the International Space Station. But um, eventually the US government wants to not be paying for that. They, they would love for, and NASA would love for private companies to take over that sort of process of having almost like quote unquote real estate in space. And then NASA's real job is to go do like cutting edge science. And so the mm -hmm. space station has been operating for 20 years or so. It's becoming a understood, uh, repeatable activity. And then NASA wants to hand that off to private industry so they can yeah. optimize it and, and, and do the things that private industry does better than government. And yeah, they've actually they've done that successfully with the rocket side of things. SpaceX now launches rockets and carries NASA payloads. They want to do that for the space stations as well. Ultimately, it sounds like we're doing a better job with integrating with NASA. And I know that NASA really got us all started in terms of space development exploration with U.S. Uh, kind of pushing to compete with Russia at the time, which got us to to where we are today. And I want to ask you about that in a second, but. I'm happy to hear about the interaction and collaboration, I guess, between the government and private industries. My take is we need the government to get started because there's so much investment required to get us off the ground with these types of projects, but that it's helpful to have private companies that are much faster in terms of innovation. It helps that we have billionaires who can fund companies. It reminds me of the development we had in the U.S. in the late 1800s, when we thought, when we think about Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, et cetera, feels this way, like we're in a similar type of age today. What is your take on that private and government interaction in space? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question because there's this. It very much remains to be determined. Like what? Like there's a constant collaboration of of support that takes place, and also attention sometimes of uh, of Sometimes, you know, like government, like NASA has this amazing legacy with, with Apollo and, and as well as the space shuttle program, um, which ended in 2011. But there was originally, I would say, a little bit of tension when SpaceX in, in the early 2000s was trying to demonstrate that a commercial entity could, could put things in space, uh, which is an endeavor that, that only governments had previously succeeded in. And there was a, a, a portion of people within NASA who were interested in facilitating that capability for private industry and supporting SpaceX. And there was certainly a faction that uh, thought that this is the kind of thing that governments did and should and are the only ones they can that can do it. And no one could ever do what, um, you know, like uh, no one could match the sort of like capabilities that right. that NASA and that legacy had done and SpaceX. I think fought a, an uphill battle to prove that. And at this point, there's really no question that where they, um, that they have been able to do that. They are 
you know, really the most capable launch provider in the world right now, I would argue. But that was also facilitated by NASA handing off a lot of and, and providing a lot of insight into, okay, this is what we've learned over the last 60 years of doing this. And there's a collaboration there. And that's sort of like at its best, it's a, a beautiful collaboration. At its worst, it's like a competition of sort of like almost, you know, in some cases, probably ego driven of like, you know, people want to uh, continue to be the ones who, yeah, there, there's a there's a tension there. Um, yeah, makes and sense. So, yeah. And yeah. I know we, we had a lot of that tensions to get to where we are today. I remember when SpaceX needed to really try and get NASA as a partner. And I remember that being a bit difficult. I'm just seeing that Marcin looked up for us. So the ISS was started around 1998 and there are 15 mm -hmm. countries. So it's Japan, Russia, European Space Agency, Canada, and Maybe there are a couple more contributors, but just so that we're accurate in what we're sharing yeah. with listeners. Yeah, thank um, you. Ian, I'd, maybe you could share with us what era of space development do you feel like we are in today? So you mentioned the Apollo program. We talked about NASA leading previously. And where are we today and how did we get here? Yeah, yeah. So I would. So people would describe the current era of uh, the space period as like kind of the what people call, quote unquote, like the new space period or often like Ooh. the commercial space era. So it, yeah, which you would have the Apollo program in the 60s. And I, I think the last Apollo mission was in 1971 or 72. And, um, mm -hmm. and then you sort of entered the shuttle era, which I think was late 70s and and um, really most intense in the 80s and 90s and, and ended in 2011 was the last shuttle launch. And in 2002, I would say the, the in, like, SpaceX entering this landscape was probably what people would describe as like the en the entry of the new space era, which is where there was a sort of like a viable commercial uh, ecosystem of companies. And um, there were there were definitely attempts to do private space companies in the 90s, but none of them, no one really had success, uh, like longstanding success uh, until SpaceX founded in 2002. And why and is even that? Yeah, it, it's a great question. It's hard to, to define which factors. I mean, I think you could put a lot on the timing of it where in 2008, SpaceX got its first major contract, which was a NASA contract. And so there was a willingness to, from NASA, provide support for that. I think you would have to say that, like, Elon Musk is, a, is a, a, an entrepreneur who has had success in this area where no one else has before. And so, you know, the culture that, has, that exists within SpaceX um, is probably mm -hmm. unique to any other organization. Um, and so, ha you know, to pick apart that would probably be someone, you need someone who is much more of an expert in like uh, the culture of an entrepreneurial organization yeah. than I am. Um, but yeah, all those go into it. There's something very unique and special about SpaceX as an organization. And also- To what extent would you say the amount of funding as well? Because I imagine you need a ton of funding to get this sort of endeavor off the ground. First of all, you need to really lean into failure. Like you, yeah. you need to fail so many times and learn from that to keep moving forward. It's literally rocket science. And to what extent do you feel like that also came into play? Yeah, that was hugely important. I mean, uh, like Elon Musk famously put $100 million into SpaceX when it started, which gave them the opportunity to take a number of sort of like big shots at and to think more long term than if you had to raise capital along the way in smaller pieces. And so yeah. they like the other famous story of like the 
early SpaceX uh, process is they had three rocket failures before their fourth uh, attempt was a success. And this, as the story goes, like they didn't have money for a fifth after the fourth. And so it was kind of like the last opportunity. And when that fourth attempt uh, rocket did go to space, then within weeks, NASA awarded them a major contract that gave them the opportunity to sort of like think again long-term and, and plan what services they were going to provide to NASA. So the funding- Stuff of movies. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there will be a movie. There, there are books also uh, about it. There's a, a book um, called Liftoff uh, that came out, I think, in the last year about it as well, which is okay. great. And also, yeah. it also highlights how tough entrepreneurship is and just how much grit and resilience and commitment. To your point earlier of it's not glamorous, it wasn't glamorous at your first job. We always celebrate the wins, but there are so many failures along the way. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. And so we're in the commercial space era. Where do you feel like this era will take us, Ian? Yeah, and I, so within the commercial space era, we're probably in like well into the this kind of second wave of it. I'd say the first wave is sort of like SpaceX sort of establishing maybe from like 2002 to like 2015 when they like first land a rocket. And I would say that that becomes an establishment of like a pretty like they've then laid 15 years of groundwork, which they've kind of been you like for the last seven years, they've been since 2015, they've like been the dominant player in the space world. And I think what that enabled up into 2015, where it started to see that like they had a sort of a defendable like uh, success around this, the Falcon 9 rocket they developed, as well as the um, the Dragon capsule, which is like a spacecraft that can carry people and once you're in space and move them to the space station and bring them back to Earth. So those kind of two major products that no other private company has, and they do it at a cost that's much more affordable than any government does. Um, mm -hmm. It took them, you know, 10, 15 years to establish that. And now the venture investment community has seen that and is now trying to fund the next company that could that, that they hope could replicate that. And so that that success from SpaceX kind of opened up this huge wave of, of investment in space since like 2015 on or so. And yeah, that's that's kind of been like the second wave where it's sort of become this distributed investment process, like uh, where a, a number of, of major investments venture firms have sort of become interested in the space industry. Yeah, opened a, up opened up a new industry for us. Great yeah. segue. I was going to have us transition to, will you tell us about the business aspects of space? So you're an angel investor, you're working on a stealth company. What is this landscape like, Ian? Yeah. So there's a bunch of different, in, in terms of like what makes up the space industry, there's the launch sector, which we've talked about. Um, I would say like other major verticals in the space industry are communications. So using space for like direct TV, satellite television, uh, or Sirius XM radio, or more recently, like broadband internet. So that's a, a lot of investment mm -hmm. has gone to SpaceX has, has a project called Starlink. Amazon has a broadband internet project called Project Kuiper. And then there's another, mm -hmm. um, company called OneWeb that have all sort of invested in that, in that. So that like, that's another vertical, um, and sort of application or space. So can you 
improve communications on space by using access. I'm sorry, on Earth, using access to space. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then another... Um, it's space too. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then another is like Earth observation. So can you use sen- put sensors in space and take pictures of the Earth? And so that would be companies mm. like Planet Lab um, is one that's sort of famous for that. And, and those yeah. are the, sort of the traditional ways to make money in space. Got it. So it's super clear to me the implications or the applications of communications like Starlink. I'm half Ukrainian. I remember Elon allowing Starlink and internet access in Ukraine. I know how valuable this would be in developing parts of the world where internet access is not as stable, et cetera. And help me understand the applications of observing the earth. My mind is going toward, could this potentially help us with climate change? What's entailed in observation? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Another great question. Uh, Climate change is is an excellent uh, example. So NASA actually has uh, in space has satellites, I think they're called Landsat, that have been used for decades now that that they provide this data of the pictures they've taken of the Earth and you can very accurately track how much have, uh, you know, has Antarctic or Arctic ice receded or, or expanded over a period of time. And and so that's a, that's a one great example. Climate, I think, is increasingly becoming a relation, like a, an overlap with space because you can measure like almost emissions in some ways. You can take pictures mm-hmm. using other mm-hmm. parts of the spectrum to see how much methane is coming out of a plant or something like that. Um, but mm. Speaking but, of emissions, do you feel like yeah. we can track the ozone layer and how it's depleted or not? Oh, I don't know. Photos? Uh, that's a good question. I, I actually, um, I don't know if, if like the current uh, Great answer. sensor suite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything I said would just be speculation and guessing and probably wouldn't be helpful for anyone listening to this. <laughs> Amazing. Great. Um, Great answer. But to touch, one last thing to touch on Earth observation is the biggest purchaser of that kind of data is actually the, if you're an American company, uh, the Defense Department, because um, mm. like... The way, for, for example, uh, at just before like uh, the like Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, Russia was suggesting that they had no interest in doing so. And the way that the U.S. was able to say to the international community, we actually believe that they are preparing to do so was um, the U.S. was using its own operated satellites and purchasing satellite imagery from other countries to say, actually, it looks like there is a gathering of of people at the border they are building I remember travel and that's kind of like the the biggest market actually for um earth observation and other defense right okay so then when you think about the space vc landscape is it set up to allow for space companies to thrive and grow and specifically what i mean is usually vcs have a horizon of maybe seven-ish years and with space companies, they need maybe 20-ish years to fully develop and get you an ROI, return on your investment. Is the VC landscape set up for that? Yeah, great point. It's, it's, so, it's so true that, you know, like historically, you would say the, the venture uh, path and landscape is established for probably uh, what you would mostly consider software companies, you know, that can... Uh, be funded and scale and maybe have an exit event in seven to 10 years and require a certain amount of capital to build a product, a certain amount of capital to scale. And uh, all of that differs in some ways with the space industry. And it's um, it's probably true in, in, in many ways for all what you would consider 
deep tech or frontier tech in, in industries. Mm -hmm. So the space industry kind of has some some shared challenges with like the the biotech industry. Um, if you were to try to invest in anything extensively hardware related, whether it's semiconductors, all, all of these industries have like a ton of capital that needs to go in. They're extremely capital intensive. They have longer time frames, and and certainly that's true for the space industry. And earlier on, like in the early 2000s, like 2009 to 2014, when people first started trying to, I think, take space companies to venture capital investors and say, you know, we can give you a return. We can, if you fund this, we'll have an exit. There was very, there wasn't a great understanding amongst the investment community, like what to expect and, and whether or not that would work. And there were definitely bets taken. Um, yeah. But I think that awareness of it's going to take longer, it's going to take more capital, uh, where the capital will need to come in and what timelines is not what you might have experienced with software. Um, that was not fully well understood. And I would say now there is a, a good chunk of venture investors in the space community who have aligned expectations with the companies where they're willing to take longer. Um, okay. I will say that was true for the last two years when markets were in a different state than they are today. I think it might, you might see over the next year or it already has a little bit happened where, where investors are going to say, okay, I'm going to return to my software investments where I, I know what those outcomes look like. Um, but I think that's just a natural part of the investment cycle where sometimes yeah. people could become more risk averse and less risk averse based on where the market is. Okay. So sounds then like it's still a work in progress. Yeah. Uh, this industry is still evolving very much young, which makes total sense yep. given what we just, what we already discussed. All right. And then what's your sense of the startup ecosystem here? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's there's a, there's a lot, um, a lot of interesting like aspects in, that are unique about the space ecosystem and, and the startup world of that is, um, you know, one one interesting trend is uh, so many people who are starting space companies, uh, so much of the talent that is now on this like sort of second wave of of, of the new space world where um, where venture the, the venture community has become much more interested in space is is possible because of what. SpaceX did like building this great culture of, of starting space projects and and um, and extremely mission driven, purpose driven, and like culture and just like having audacious goals and meeting them. So actually, it's interesting. A lot of the talent that's starting this next wave of of, of startups often came their their talent coming out of SpaceX um, mm -hmm. or or other uh, handful of yeah. companies that have that have been successful. Um, yeah, like there's there's an increasingly ambitious set of projects that are being worked on by small you know, space startups where I mentioned communication and, and uh, Earth observation, observation and launch. And those, and, and those are still being improved upon. But now there's a, an increasing focus towards can you do, can you operate uh, in what's called cislunar space? So creating like a commercial mm -hmm. ecosystem between the Earth and the moon. And what does that look like? Can you extract resources? What does that look like? Commercial. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of that's to be figured out. Like what it, so I would say the most obvious application is there is ice on the moon and that's uh -huh. H2O. And so, you know, if you can separate that, you have oxygen, which is breathable. Mm -hmm. If you were to put a, a habitat on the moon and also hydrogen, which is a, a major fuel source 
um, for which can become a propellant for rockets and launch vehicles. So just the, the extraction of lunar ice to provide a way to um, to sustain life and, and establish it on the moon. Yeah, that's kind of the, the I would say the the push over the next eight years is can, you know, and that's NASA's current focus uh, when it comes to um, crude space travel, putting mm-hmm. people in space is going mm-hmm. back to the moon to stay this time. So that's permanent okay. habitat, as opposed to in the Apollo period where you go for three or four days and then everyone comes back. Can anyone stay there? Can we build a permanent habitat? Yeah. And permanent meaning just anything more than what six months, or really permanent, like forever for your, I guess life, for your lifespan. It would be not permanent for a particular individual, but it's always crewed. So just like the International Space mm-hmm. Station, you have crews that rotate in and out for six months, but it's never not uh, having people there. That's the hope that you would do. Fascinating. Yeah. So exciting for me to keep track of the things that feel very fascinating to me here are the continual development of Starship and reusable rockets. I really love the competition aspect, actually, of having these startups like Blue Origin, SpaceX kind of chase each other, I think, push forward innovation for the industry and how that's propelled this new wave of startups in the space. And hopefully that'll keep us improving. Um, And then what you just described, potentially inhabiting the moon. How very cool. What are you excited about, Ian, as you look at the space industry? Yeah, I am just constantly thinking about, uh, I think you need, um, like, if you want to build a, a, like, enduring commercial ecosystem, you need to figure out ways to make money doing a lot of these projects. And a handful of companies have, and I I think it's just interesting to think, what is the, where are the businesses that can be built with a, like, longstanding competitive advantage uh, throughout all these these industries and these verticals within the space industry. And I think that that's such a fascinating thing to try to find this like overlap between really groundbreaking technology and how do you build a business where you can bring in talent yeah. and keep bringing in, you know, incredible talent to solve more and more problems um, in a profitable way. I think it's just like such a, a weird, unique uh, thing to try to figure out. And so I'm always excited when I'm talking with people who are just like, essentially dedicating their lives to, mm-hmm. to, to how to create an enduring like ecosystem in the space industry. And culture. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, sounds like you're on that journey yourself. And this has been so informative for me. I've learned so much and I'm so excited for you to continue on this journey. I want to get you back when your company is out of stealth so we can talk all about it. Ian, and thanks for giving us this background. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. I, uh, I appreciate the set. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.